0: Mark 8, verse 34, and it says this, calling the crowds along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Heavenly Fathers, we consider the idea of what is a disciple. I pray, Lord, that you will challenge us, that you will us and that you will convict us as we work throughout this sermon and this series, thinking through the idea of being a disciple-making disciple. Change us, Lord, to look more like your son. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning. Happy New Year. We, the Matala family, missed you all last week as we were away at uh, in Minnesota, heard that Pastor Mark did a phenomenal job preaching. So had no doubt about that. But we are excited to be back with you. Uh, it always feels like we're coming home to family, because uh, we are coming home to family when we come back to New Breed. So it is good to be with you. I'm excited to start this year off. I'm excited to see what the Lord has in store for us as a church uh, this year. And this morning, we're actually beginning a new series. And so for the next couple months, we're going to be working through a series. We're not going to necessarily be in a book of a Bible, but we're going to be jumping around a little bit. And we're going to be considering this idea of disciple making disciples. Disciple making disciples disciples. And I just want to say I am very excited to preach this series, uh, because this series kind of strikes at the heart of what we are all about. This series has been a year in the making, uh, so it's going to take us through February, but it's something that we've uh, been thinking about for quite some time. And so at the start, I know this is going to be somewhat of a lengthy introduction, but bear with me. Uh, I want to do a things as we start here. First, uh, let me share with you why we're doing this series. So even last night I was talking with Brother Carlos and he asked me, you know, what brought this about? And I told him he'd have to show up and stay tuned because I wasn't going to give it away last night. But I did tell him uh, that this series was birthed somewhat out of a burden. It was birthed somewhat out of a burden, and here's what I mean. At the beginning of last year, so at the beginning of 2019, I almost said 2018, but last year was 2019, so at the beginning of 2019, I knew that changes were ahead for New Breed Church, and you did too, because at the beginning of 2019, we were in... This, this kind of moment of transition, yet not really transition, because we were still doing what we do, we were still trying to make much of the gospel, we were living in community together, but things were changing. Pastor Curtis was with us, serving as a transitional pastor, as we were trying to figure out what the Lord had for us moving forward in terms of a lead pastor, would we have a lead pastor, who would fill that role, uh, what would it look like. At, in January of 2019, I was fairly convinced that it wasn't going to be me. Uh, The Lord works in mysterious ways. Amen. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, I am the lead pastor of the New Breed Church. But I didn't think it was going to be me during that transition. But I knew that we were changing. I knew that some things were, were going to look different as we moved along. And so what I began to do in order to hit the ground running in whatever direction God led is I wanted to make sure that we had clear eyes and sober thinking about where we are as a church. The reason that I was doing that is because I was anticipating God bringing somebody else in to serve on our pastoral team. And so what I wanted to make sure we had as pastors was a good grasp, a good sense of where we are as a church so that we didn't lose step. We just could keep rolling and we could kind of fill them in on this is where we are. These are some of our strengths. These are some of our weaknesses. These are areas where we need to grow. These are areas where the Lord has grown us. So be- I began to evaluate where we are as a church and I did it through the entirety of two thousand. I won't share it with you, but I actually have a full journal full of just reflections on us as a church and even individuals in the church just kind of praying through the members and thinking about where we are and where we can love individual members and where we need to go as a church. But the criteria, and this is very important, by which I began to evaluate the church at the beginning of January of 2019 was through our mission statement. We exist to make disciples, to show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. And we've shared this with you and stressed this with, to you. But as, for us as pastors, the mission statement isn't just something that we put on our stationery and it's not just on our website because it's a cute thing to say and every church needs a good mission statement. Our mission statement is the avenue and the lens through which we evaluate everything that we do as New Breed Church. So when we are thinking about starting ministries or bringing things to fruition, we ask the question, does this fit within the mission of our church to make disciples, to show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel? In some sense, it's guardrails for us that, that one, this church doesn't just turn into a social club, amen? Amen. But but that we have a lens through which we evaluate what we are doing. And so the criteria was the mission statement. Now what's interesting about our mission statement is you could sum our mission statement up into three words. Disciple making disciples. Because we say that we exist to make disciples to show off Christ where life exists. Well, how are we doing this? By gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. So when we say we're gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel, we're saying we want to be disciples. And as we are disciples, our aim is to make disciples to show off Christ. So we are trying to be here at New Breed Church, disciple-making disciples. Are you tracking with me? And so what faithfulness looks like as we evaluate New Breed Church as pastors, as we look at as you look at New Breed Church, what we deem faithfulness to look like for us as a church is, are we a church that is full of disciple-making disciples, Are we a church that is full of disciple-making disciples? And so what I began to do was evaluate. I spent the year evaluating, as I mentioned, where we were, evaluating our mission, evaluate how we were doing, and I was just trying to take an honest look at the church, myself included, as a member of this church, and see if we could honestly say that we are a church of disciple-making disciples. Now, let me say this. I believe in some ways we are doing it well. I do. I, I genuinely believe that there are some things that are happening at Newbury Church where, where disciple-making is going well. But I also think that there are many ways in which we are not. And we'll get into those kind of more in detail throughout this series. But, but I want to say this at the front end because I, I, I have a feeling, in a sense, um, You know, as the Holy Spirit's been kind of pressing this on me and working through it, the Holy Spirit's been kind of drawing out this need to be gentle me because I have a sense that this series might seem very condemning. And I don't want it to be condemning. And so I'm going to say this at the front end, that my aim throughout this series is not to shame anyone because that's not what Jesus wants, Amen. When Jesus convicts, when he shows us areas where we are weak, it's not so that we will feel shame and disgrace, but it's so that we can see that we are missing the mark and Jesus has something better for us, amen? When God convicts us and shows us areas of weakness because he wants us to see there's something better, and so my aim is not for you to walk out of here feeling, man, we really stink at this, we're really bad at this, because I... I don't want that to be what comes across, but I do believe, as I've kind of prayed through it, that this might be more of a convicting series because we are going to directly look at area, an area where we as a church need to grow, where we need to grow. But here's why this is so important to get right. I would argue, and I stand on this, that being a disciple-making disciple is foundational to the purpose of the church. And when I say that, I don't mean just new breed church. Yes, it's our mission statement, but but our mission statement, we just didn't pull it out of thin air. It comes from scripture. And so I would argue that being a disciple-making disciple is foundational to the purpose of the church as a whole, the global church. And I would argue that also means that it is foundational to your purpose as a human being living in this world. That God is calling you as an individual to be a disciple-making disciple. And I believe you can argue this from Matthew chapter 28. Now, if you remember back in July, we kind of did a little recap of Matthew 28 as we examined. And our mission, and I want to remind you of something that I talked about in that sermon. Again, just trying to to present to you the argument that making disciples is foundational to who we are and the reason we exist in this world. The Great Commission in Matthew 28. It begins, and Jesus says, "All authority in heaven and uh, and." On heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded to you. And if you remember back to that sermon in July, I told you that there's something very interesting in that passage. There are four verbs that are listed. In the Greek language, there are four verbs. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. And what's interesting, as is, is we talked about this, is that in the original language, the Greek language, those verbs look a little different. So one of those verbs is an imperative. Now, if you remember your English le- uh, lesson back in July, I told you that imperative is a command given. So of those action words, of those verbs, there is one that is a command that is given. and the other three the other three are just participles. They are modifying that main verb. So let me break that down for you. The main command in the Great commission is to make disciples. Make disciples. Now, we've heard it preached where people look at that and they focus on the go. And they say, that's the great command. That's important. But the command, the imperative is to make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching tell us how we make disciples. They modify that verb. So think about this. There's got to be some significance that the last thing that Jesus says to his collective disciples standing in front of him is, go, make disciples. Make disciples. So let's go back to our mission statement. We exist, we say, to make disciples. Our chief aim as a church is to make disciples. And I want you to hear me say it as your pastor, that that is what we are all about. That is what we should be all about. The chief aim of the church, listen, is not to meet all the physical needs of our community. The chief aim of our church is not to motivate people to have a better life. The chief aim of our church is not to make our community safer, and it's not to make others feel more valuable. Though we care about all of those things, hear me, that is not the chief aim of the church. The chief aim of the church is to make disciples. Now, I would argue that if you are making faithful disciples, some of those things will happen, but our chief aim is to make disciples. Pastor Mark Dever in his book Discipling wrote this. He said at the heart of Christianity is God's desire for a people to display his character. And they do this through, through their obedience to his word and in their relationships with him and with each other. Therefore, he sent his son to call out a people to follow him. And part of following the son, listen to this, is calling still more to follow the Son." And together they demonstrate God's own love, holiness, and oneness. His son, therefore, gave this last command before ascending to heaven. Go and make disciples. Now I want you to hear this last line of this this quote. He says, the lives of these people, in other words, should be dedicated to helping others follow Jesus. The last command that God gave to the collective body ...of the saints was to be disciple-making disciples. And again, I would argue that it is foundational to our purpose. There is no faithfulness as the collective people of God... ...and there is no faithfulness for the individual Christian... ...apart from making disciples. So part of why we are doing this, part of why we are going to dive into this idea of disciple-making disciples is because I believe that Scripture communicates that we cannot be faithful to the reason that Jesus has left us on earth if we are not making disciples. That's not just the task of pastors. That's not just the task of ministry leaders. That is the task of every Christian who is left on this earth to make disciples So that's kind of where this series came from, but I want to share with you, still kind of here in the beginning, where we're headed with this series to just kind of give you an idea of what it's going to look like. So this morning, I'm going to begin answering this question of what is a disciple, and I forgot to tell Chris to put it in the bulletin, it's part one, because next week will be part two. So we're going to look at this passage of scripture in Mark 8, 34, and start to answer this question of what is a disciple. We'll finish that up next week. Uh, by continuing to answer the question of what is a disciple, then where we're going to move after that is, is we're going to start looking into the idea of the heart that leads us to disciple-making. What is the heart that we should have that will spur us on to to make disciples, and we're going to look at the passage of Scripture where Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Following that, we're going to look at something that should be very interesting. We're going to talk about preparing to be a disciple-maker, and we're going to examine Jesus' temptation in the wilderness which was the first thing that happened before he set out into public ministry. And so that'll take us through the month of January, and all of that kind of focusing on just what does it look like to kind of have this core understanding of what is a disciple. And then what we're going to do in February is we're going to start putting some feet to this we're going to start talking about some practical ways in which we as individuals start cultivating lives that are built on the idea that we have to actually make disciples. What does it look like to disciple someone, to help someone fall in love with and follow Jesus? So that's where we're headed. But this morning, again, I want to begin by answering this question of what is a disciple? And so I have four marks of a disciple that I'm pulling out of Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And for sake of time, I'm going to kind of skip the rest of this intro, and I just want to jump into it here. So here is the first mark of a disciple that we see in Mark 8, 34. A disciple is in relationship. A disciple is in relationship. Relationship to be a disciple is to accept the invitation from Jesus to walk in relationship with Jesus. Again, look at what Mark writes. He said, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me. And so as Jesus says these words, follow after me, what he is doing is it's marvelous. is He is inviting people into a relationship with, with him, See, what we have to understand, church, is that discipleship does not begin with a task. Discipleship does not begin with a task. Discipleship begins with a relationship. To again quote Dever, he wrote, Being a disciple of Christ, in other words, does not begin with something we do. It begins with something Christ did. See, in order to be a faithful disciple, we have to remember the work that Christ accomplished that allows us to even be in relationship with him. We have to remember his love for us displayed on the cross, not to give us, listen, not to give us a new moral objective, not to give us a bunch of tasks to complete, but we remember Christ's love displayed on the cross that brought us into a real relationship with him. Because we can't forget What our sin does is it separates us from God. We can't walk in fellowship with God. We can't walk in fellowship with Jesus in our sin because our sin separates us from him. And as you know, there's nothing we can do to remedy that. There's nothing we can do. Our sin sets us apart from God, and without him intervening, we are destined to die separated from God. But God has intervened in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus showed up. He faithfully fulfilled the law, did not deserve death, did not deserve punishment, died on a cross in our place in order to glorify God and to provide a way for us to walk in right fellowship with God. Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, provided a means of relationship. And so when Jesus says, come and follow after me, he is not inviting us into a a set of tasks to be completed. He is inviting us into a relationship to be lived in. But here's why this is so significant. If you don't see your status as a disciple, as being one who walks in relationship with Jesus... You will be no better than a Pharisee. That's very important. If you don't see your status as a disciple as being one who walks first and foremost in relationship with Jesus, you will be no better than a Pharisee. All you will see is a list of works to be completed in order to look like a faithful disciple rather than living out the reality of this relationship that you have entered into. The relationship is foundational, not the tasks to be completed. Let me kind of flesh this out for you because I think on an earthly level, we know this idea to be true. Here's what I mean. You would probably look at me kind of sideways uh, if you came and said to me, you know, let's say we just met, right? You met me, you met my wife, and you say, hey, you know, man, you guys are a great couple. Because we are. Um, you guys are, are a great couple. You know, what is it about uh, Aaliyah, you know, that, that, that made you want to marry her? What is it about her that, that kind of brought you two together? You would probably look at me a little sideways if I said, well, I just knew that together we would be more effective at doing the laundry. And, you know, we'd probably be a little bit more effective at, like, cleaning the house. Uh, we, we'd probably be a little bit more effective at, at filling the task, right? <laughs> Your first thought would probably be like, that ain't going to last. Like, you know, like, the, that's a weird thing to, to build a marriage on. But what you would expect and what I would say to you if you said, what was it that led you kind of to, to marry this person? I would say, I l- love her. I love who she is. I love what God has done in her. I love the person that she is. I love this woman. That would seem more like a relationship, wouldn't it? Now, are there tasks to be completed in marriage? 100%. The Lord gives tasks and commands of how you should live in your marriage. But what brought me to my wife wasn't the fact that there were a bunch of things that needed to get done. Brought me to my wife was a real love for her. And so as we are trying to fulfill these tasks that the Lord has set before us, it's undergirded by this real love and this real relationship. And so if we see discipleship as merely a bunch of tasks that we have to complete so that Jesus is pleased with us, That's a rocky foundation, and we are no better than the Pharisees. And let me just note that Jesus had a lot to say about the Pharisees. Nearly the entire chapter of Matthew 23 is dedicated to Jesus righteously rebuking the Pharisees for how they understood their walk with God. Let me read you some of Matthew 23. Jesus says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Listen to this. You want to talk about a bad picture of discipleship. He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You you travel over land and sea to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell. And he goes on and he says, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? And what the Pharisees understood their walk or, or their interaction with God to be was a, a list of rules that needed to be followed and not a relationship to be lived in. And Jesus says that will condemn you straight to hell. But when Jesus says, if anyone would follow after me, he's inviting us into a relationship with him. Again, if our understanding of discipleship is not built on a relationship, we will produce disciples who think that the Christian life is all about tasks rather than loving Jesus and walking in relationship with him. And we have to be careful because often that's the way we approach disciple making, isn't it? Well, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, here are the things you have to do. We'll get into this down the road, but I'll throw it in now. But the most faithful way to make disciples is not to say, here's the list of things you need to do, but to say, here is the one who loves you and you should love. You see, when we understand what he has done for us, we will long to walk in relationship with Jesus. And notice this, when we see him as the greatest treasure of our lives, we will follow in relationship even though it is difficult because we will value that relationship above everything else. See, this relationship, the reason it's so significant as the foundation is the relationship will undergird you when discipleship gets hard. The tasks won't be enough to keep you going. But a real love for Jesus, seeing this one who died for you and was raised from the dead as the greatest treasure of your life will motivate you to press on in discipleship even when being a disciple gets hard. And church, let me tell you, being a disciple of Jesus is not easy. We'll see that in the next two marks of a disciple. So here's the second mark of a disciple. Not only is a disciple in relationship, but a disciple plays the background, a disciple plays the background, let me try to give you an illustration, I've been working on my illustration, and one of the things they say is that, you know, when you kind of insult yourself as a speaker, that you relate better with the people you're speaking to, so here goes, Um, in high school, uh, my senior year of high school, so, so I was a band guy, Kind of all through elementary school and middle school i played instruments love music um but band began to be kind of a burden because i kept getting in trouble for being not very good a good student And so i decided i was going to switch right and so my senior year of high school i switched to choir um, to sing and, and i really just wanted to join one particular choir because i knew they took really cool trips so like i knew that that year they were going to hong kong uh, I was like, I want to go to Hong Kong. So I joined a group, and some of you might know this if you've ever been quiet, choir. It was the magical Group. Now, if you don't know what that is, the magical Group is the group of singers that kind of dress up in, like, renaissance outfits, like wear tights and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, it was epic, by the way. Um, and so, and you perform kind of like you're sitting at a table, right, and singing. Uh, but madrigal is really interesting because madrigal requires, uh, you, you have to be fairly decent at singing because a lot of it is like solos and parts and things like that. Now, I wasn't the greatest, so they didn't give me any solos, and I was cool with that. Um, but part of my job as a singer was that when people were singing solos, because what madrigals do is they don't use music. It's all cappella. And so, when you're singing a cappella, you need other voices to really kind of support that one main voice who's singing a song. So, a lot of my job was kind of singing those, like you know, those those tenor or bass lines, just kind of those. Um, You know, things like that. You know, every once in a while they give me a bum, 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 like when they really trusted me, right? And so, but what you're doing is you're playing the background, right? And the goal of that is for people not to be focusing on you. I want to make this singer look as good and sound as good as they possibly can. And so I was content to earn my trip to Hong Kong by playing the background, amen? I was great at playing the background. Well, here's the thing. A mark of a disciple is a willingness to play the background, of saying that we are not the star of the show and we are not the one who all eyes should be on and we are not the one who is most important. We are not the one who is most beautiful and our job is to do everything we can to help people fix their eyes and their affection and their love on the one who is the star and that is Jesus. You see, if you keep reading in our text, he says, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny Himself. So here's the thing about being a disciple of Jesus. The moment we enter into this relationship with him, we are declaring that we believe Jesus is best. And we believe that his way is best. And we believe that he is the one that all eyes should be on. We have to remember that the heart of discipleship is a denial of ourselves and what we think is best because it's not about us. And we do this in order to faithfully follow Jesus and make much of Him. You know, Scripture speaks of this frequently as well. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all so that those who live, listen, those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. We saw in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ in me. See, here's where a lot of Christians go wrong. And I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, so if it sounds like I'm talking to you, well, then I probably am, but I'm not thinking about you, all right? Here's where a lot of Christians get it wrong. A lot of us believe that being a disciple of Jesus is something we can switch on and off. It's something that we believe we can do when we feel like it. When it fits conveniently into our plans and doesn't mess anything else up. But what we forget is that being a disciple of Jesus demands everything. It demands everything. You see, too often Christians want the option to make much of Jesus when it is convenient for them and when it fits into their plans. Can we just be transparent for a minute? That's a lot of us, isn't it? That's me included. Now, I'll I'll make disciples. I will be a faithful disciple who makes disciples as long as it doesn't mess up what I've got planned for the future and for next week and for next month and it doesn't mess up my family vacation and it doesn't mess up uh, my schedule with my children and going to sleep and it doesn't you know we'll do that at times you see too often myself included we want the option to make much of jesus when it is convenient But the reason I would argue that so many of us struggle to be disciple-making disciples is because it doesn't fit into our plan. It doesn't fit into our plan. But again, here's the thing about being a disciple. If we truly believe what Jesus is saying here in Mark 8, 34, then when we become a disciple, our plans go out the window. That doesn't mean we can't make plans, because Scripture says that we make our plans, but that the Lord guides our steps. And so when I say our plans go out the window, I'm not saying don't make plans, but what I am saying is the moment we become a disciple, we hold everything like this and nothing like this, meaning we're holding nothing on so tightly that if the Lord demands us to lay it down, we won't drop it. We hold everything with an open hand. We're going to make our plans, but if the Lord leads me this way, I'm fine dropping that. Because we genuinely believe that what Jesus has for us is best. And so being a disciple is being willing to deny ourselves and to run after him, to play the background. In Matthew chapter 8, this is how intense it gets. In Matthew chapter 8, one of the disciples said to Jesus, Hey, listen, I'll follow you, but my dad just died, so let me go bury my father and then I'll come follow you. And you know what Jesus says to him? Follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Man, that seems like really intense to me. It's like, Jesus, you couldn't have given him like 40 minutes to go like dig a hole and bury his father. But Jesus is painting this picture. Not that he doesn't care about those who die, but he's trying to communicate that that we don't get to be disciples on our terms. We don't get to be disciples on our terms. We don't get to be disciples when it fits into our schedule. To be a faithful disciple of Jesus is to deny ourselves and follow him. And this takes humility, but that humility begins to form when we frequently remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. Remember how I said the relationship was the foundation? We are willing to deny ourselves when we are walking in relationship, remembering what it was that allowed us to even come into this relationship and what it is that this relationship has produced. See, as we reflect on the cross, we are reminded of just how amazing Jesus is and how worthy he is to be followed. So much so that we will be willing to lay everything else aside to run after him and make much of him. Paul understood this. Paul was a man who understood this. We see this in Philippians 2, a passage that we hear frequently where where Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I, by any means possible, may attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen, Philippians 2 is not a cute bumper sticker, and it's not a nice wall hanger. It is a declaration of real discipleship that I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is saying, I will deny myself and I will lay everything down if it means that I gain Christ. I will set aside my desires. I will set aside my dreams. I will set aside my plans. I will even set aside my family and friends if it means I can live and walk in relationship with Jesus. And so hear me, while you lose some things, you gain everything. Jesus says in the very next verse of Mark chapter 8, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. I don't ever want you to hear me say that if you follow Jesus faithfully as a disciple, it won't cost you anything. I can't say that. Jesus didn't say that. It will cost you some things, but you will gain everything. So a disciple is in relationship. A disciple plays the background, but here's the third mark. A disciple embraces the hardship. A disciple embraces the hardship. Continue on with me in in, in verse 34 where he says, Calling the crowds along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, and here it is, and take up his cross. Now, I love that Jesus says this. I absolutely, I am so thankful that he put this in the Bible. I love that he says it because it reminds us that Jesus was never shy about communicating to us that following him and being his disciple would entail some pain. Yes, you have life in Christ. Yes, you have eternal life in Christ. Yes, you are right with God, but with that comes hardship in this world. And a disciple of Jesus must embrace this hardship. See, see here's what I, I want to remind you about this hardship. And, and track with me here, because I, I think this is what Jesus was trying to communicate. He was trying to tell them that if you want to be a disciple, hardship is not optional. Because Jesus gets to define the terms of the relationship, remember? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, I'll just tell you up front, there are three books that you're going to hear quoted throughout this entire series. One is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. The other is Discipling by Mark Dever. And the other one is Among Wolves, Discipleship in the Urban Context by Dehati Lewis. And those are the three books that I've been chewing on and pondering on and rereading, so... I'll try to tell you when I steal their stuff. Or you can just read it and you'll know for yourself when I steal their stuff. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he reminds us, and this is a very important statement, discipleship is not an offer man makes to Christ. Discipleship is not an offer that man makes to Christ. Discipleship is what Christ offers to us. The reason that's so important is because if discipleship is an offer we make to him, we get to define the terms of us being his disciples. But what Dietrich Bonhoeffer understands and what Jesus teaches is that, listen, I'm the one inviting you into discipleship, and so I get to define the terms. And the question that we all have to ask, and and, and it's not a facetious question, the question we have to, I'm sorry, we have to ask and answer is do we like the terms? Because the honest reality is, brother and sister, you can say no to discipleship. But you're saying no to the relationship. You're saying no to being made right with God. You may gain some things in this earth, but you will lose everything eternally. Or you can trust that what Jesus has is best for you. And when he calls you to embrace the hardship that he is trying to call you to embrace something that will ultimately bring you into the greatest joy. You know, we talked a little bit about the significance of this statement of taking up your cross back in our study through the book of Galatians. But I, I just want to kind of reiterate some of it to you. because Some of you might not have been there for a person living in Jesus's day. This statement would have just been somewhat insane to them to take up your cross. So we can't forget. We live in a culture where where crosses are cool pieces of jewelry, right? Uh, I'd be willing to bet if I walked in the parking lot, somebody's got one on their car. We hang them on our walls, we've made them look decorative, they're Celtic, they're, you know, shiny, and they, and they look good. But for someone in that day, I can guarantee you no one had a cross hanging on their wall. Because it was an instrument of death and torture. I think I said this when we were in the book of Galatians, but it would almost be like hanging an electric chair on your wall. But like If you walked into somebody's house and you saw that, like you would not stay for dinner, Amen. eh, Not for me. We'll disciple you from a distance. Uh, It was an obscure thing for Jesus to say, take up this instrument of death, this instrument of pain, and follow me. But see, here's what Jesus is trying to communicate, and he's communicating it clearly, specifically clear to those readers who heard it. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's saying, listen, you have to be willing to endure pain to be a disciple of Jesus. The Bible tells us that, 1 Peter 5. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as if though something strange were happening to you, right? Jesus himself says in John 16, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus tried to prepare his disciples for the fact that when you decide to follow me, there will be some pain that is inflicted by the enemy and this world. But see, the cross is also, and we forget that it was an instrument of humiliation. Right? They could have just killed you with a sword. Part of the reason they put you on the cross to die was because they wanted to humiliate you. And so when Jesus says, take up the cross, he's saying, be willing to be humiliated for me, right? 1 Corinthians 1. Why are we humiliated? Because what we do is foolishness to the world. And so how does the world respond? It responds by ridiculing. It, despise, it responds by calling uh, uh, us bigots and and everything under the sun. And, And let me just say this, this is kind of a side note, right? Be on guard, Christian, because we are living in a day and age where people are trying so desperately to justify their sin by spiritual measures in order to remove humiliation from the world, and we can't do it. We are seeing people bend on a faithful biblical sexual ethic to avoid the hostility of this world. We are watching people bend on issues all across the board because we are seeing Christians who are more afraid of being humiliated than they are of being disobedient to their king. And we cannot bend on these things because Jesus was saying, you will be humiliated. There's a sense in which I know this is odd, but I've said it before. I'm somewhat glad that we are finally starting to feel some hardship and oppression for our faith. And, I, and it breaks my heart, but many will go out from us because they were not of us. You can get on Twitter and see that that's true. And that should break our hearts, but it should also encourage us to stand firm because Jesus told us this would happen. But we can't forget that the cross was an instrument of death. And Jesus says that if this world hates you, remember it hated me first. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes that that Jesus suffered outside of the city because the city wasn't even worthy of him, but he suffered outside in, in the garbage heap where the trash was thrown. And then it says, meet him outside the camp and bear his reproach. When we say we will follow Jesus, we say we will embrace you, our loving Savior, and embrace any hardship that comes with it. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you have to understand that it will cost you something. And one of the things I can guarantee it will cost you is your earthly comfort. It will cost you your earthly comfort. It might cost you financial comfort. It might cost you sleep. It might cost you time and energy and effort. And for some of you, If you are blessed to be this much like your Savior, it will cost you blood. Jesus went so far as to say in Matthew 10, 34, and 35, that whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter, that one one hits hard. More than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And this is because being a disciple of Jesus means that we will follow in his footsteps. And hear me, Jesus' life did not lead to health, to wealth, and to prosperity. It didn't lead there. It left to suffering and pain and death, but it led to glory. And so saying, I will follow in your footsteps, I will embrace the hardship, is saying, I will follow in your footsteps, Jesus, whatever that might cost, because I believe that in this relationship, I gain more than I will ever lose. And again, Jesus doesn't want to dupe anyone. He wasn't shy about saying that. I don't know how in our churches we started preaching something other than this. Hey, before you come follow me, let me stop you there. Count the cost. Count the cost, you've got to deny yourself, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to be willing to embrace hardship, to deny yourself, to play the background. Are you good with that? It's worth it, but make sure you understand the terms. Here's the final mark of a disciple. A disciple is obedient. A disciple is obedient. Let's finish the verse. He says, calling the crowds along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There is an expectation, and it seems to me a reasonable expectation, that if you are going to be a disciple, you have to actually follow the one you are a disciple of. You have to actually be obedient to Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you will keep my commands. So faithful obedience begins by going to the relationship. But it is believing that Jesus knows what is best and his ways are perfect. See, what leads us to be obedient to Jesus is that when we look at Jesus and what he has done for us and the love that he has for us and the cost at which he saved us and we see how much he is for us and what he has provided for us, it is genuinely believing that this Jesus who I am following knows what is best for me. And so when Jesus says, do this, it's because he's leading me to what is best. And when Jesus says, don't do this, it's because he's leading me to what is best. It is believing that Jesus knows what is best. And can we be honest, the heart of sin, even for us as believers, is, is an, this unbelief. It's, it's, it's not believing that Jesus knows best for us. So when Jesus says, hey, listen, don't look at that image on your computer. And I say, nope, I'm going to look at that image on my computer. It's because I believe that Jesus doesn't have my best interest in mind. He wants to keep me from pleasure. He wants to keep me from fulfillment. He wants to keep me from enjoyment. And I am pursuing a lesser thing, believing that Jesus doesn't know what is best. When Jesus says, hey, listen, shepherd your children in the way that they should go. And I say, now I'm going to let somebody else do that. We are not believing that Jesus knows what is best for us. When Jesus says, hey, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and you say, nope, I'm going to love me more, it's because you don't believe Jesus knows what is best. When when the Bible says, submit to your husband and respect your husband, and you say, no, I'm going to take the lead on this, I'm not going to play the background in my home. Because I believe Jesus doesn't know what is best, and he's trying to withhold, he's not trying to give. At the heart of any sin is a belief that Jesus just doesn't know what is best. But when we are disciples, we are fighting day in and day out to believe and hold on to the truth that Jesus knows best. And we will stumble and fall. Amen? Aren't you thankful that the requirements for discipleship isn't your own perfection? I am so glad that I can be a disciple and stumble along the way and Jesus doesn't run off without me. But he slows down and he picks me up and he helps me walk again in his steps. We'll get some of this wrong, church. But the goal, uh, the goal is for us to grow in this, to press into this, to be faithful, to obe- be obedient, to follow after Jesus. So a disciple is obedient. So let's take this back to the original premise, right? That we want to see disciple making disciples. So if, in fact, the call of Jesus as the foundational call of the church is for us to make disciples and a disciple is one who is obedient, what will that demand that we do? Make disciples. Make disciples. If we are being obedient, we will make disciples because Jesus has called us to it. But here's the beautiful thing about all of this. If we are fighting to be faithful disciples, the result is that we will begin to look more and more like Jesus. And isn't that what we want? We are disciples of Jesus because we see him as beautiful. We see him as glorious. We see him as worthy. And we want to reflect all of that to this lost and dying world. And so as we fight to be a faithful disciple, we will look more like Jesus. Here's the great thing. Jesus told us this. In Luke 640, he said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Don't you want to be like Jesus? I do. I struggle, but I do. And as we fight to be faithful disciples, Jesus says, right, again, he will finish the work and we will look like the one we are following. But again, this requires obedience. Jesus asks a very sobering question a few verse later after he says that you will look like your teacher. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And so, the question that I want to leave us with this morning, and the question that I want us to to answer is will we do what he says? Will we be faithful to follow after this one who gave his life for us? Will we walk in relationship? Will we play the background? Will we embrace hardship? And will we be obedient? Now, I want to say this because it is important. I don't want to beat anybody down. The beautiful thing about our Savior is he's not fickle. Amen? As I mentioned before, we will falter and we will fail. And you know what the amazing thing about it is? He still loves you. Because, again, your discipleship is not built on, is not secured by what you do. It's secured by what Christ did. And so if we have genuinely entered into relationship with him, though we may falter and fail at being a disciple, we can rest assured that we are his disciple because his work is sufficient. And he will finish that which he has started. But we want to fight to be holy, amen? We want to fight to be faithful disciples. Not to keep us as a disciple, but because we see Jesus is worthy. Does that make sense? We see him as worthy. And I want to end by saying this. If you are here and you have not trusted in Jesus, you are not a disciple of his, but you can be. And I hope this message didn't scare you away from that, but it is an honest message that Jesus himself taught. Following him is not always easy. It's not always butterflies and roses. There will be pain, there will be hardship, there will be trial, but it is worth it. Because this life is fleeting. And what Jesus has won for us on the cross through his death and resurrection is a way for us to be made right with God. And though we will struggle in this world, the Bible tells us that this light momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory. If the Lord lets us suffer for a hundred years, it will pale in comparison to eternity. And so we press on believing that what Jesus has done for us is better. And Jesus invites you into relationship with him through his work. And there you have the privilege to grow in being a disciple. And the beautiful thing about being here at New Breed is our aim, as you have heard, is to fight to help make disciples. And so we will walk alongside of you in that process. Church, I am excited to see what the Lord does over these next couple months as we strive to be faithful to that which we believe Jesus has called us to. But my challenge to you throughout these next two months is to honestly and faithfully evaluate how you're doing in this area of being a disciple-making disciple. Not to feel shame and not to feel guilt because Jesus paid for that. He took your shame. He took your guilt. Amen. But if he shows you an area where you are lacking, then look to see what he has that's better for you. But we have to evaluate where we are. And my prayer is that by the end of next month, this church will be filled with people who are making disciples of other people. Amen. Can you imagine what God can do through that?